Well, NATO leaders, including Prime Minister Trudeau, President Joe Biden, should be getting together relatively soon in Brussels. It's morning there already. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is shining a very bright light on the defense budgets of NATO members. Back in 2006, the alliance set a defense spending target for its members of 2% of GDP. Yet estimates are that Canada's contribution will be at 1.39% as of 2021. So well short of that. Well, last week, the defense minister, Anita Anand, said in an interview that she would propose a range of options for military spending to cabinet ahead of a federal budget expected early next month. There does seem to be consensus that more needs to be spent. The reality is the 2% goal is completely unrealistic at this point in time. It would involve billions upon billions in extra spending. It's probably unnecessary too, because where would you spend it all? That's part of the problem. So what we've been hearing is that we need to set priorities, spend more, but spend better. And Russia's invasion of Ukraine has made that all far more urgent than the government would have planned for. And now there's a deal, of course, between the liberals and the NDP. The NDP have never been particularly in favor of raising military spending. To discuss all of this is Steve Sademan. He's the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And he's also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Ben. I guess it's been a month now. I, I was actually on air uh, when 5 a.m. in uh, in Ukraine rolled around and this whole invasion started. How much of a jolt has it been uh, to the security establishment in this country? It's been quite a jolt. I mean, this war between Russia and Ukraine has been going on for eight years now. I mean, it really started in 2014. But to see the, the, the tanks and the artillery and the convoys roll in uh, and have really peer combat where you're having tank on, uh, against uh, anti, uh, t- folks armed with anti-tank weapons, uh, planes being shot down, cities being leveled. Um, it's really placed a lot of pressure on decision makers in, in Ottawa and in all the NATO capitals because there's a lot of tough choices being faced. And Canada has shifted its attention. This is not what, what uh, Trudeau was expecting to spend his, uh, his march thinking about. Some of the reaction in Europe, specifically Germany's, was uh, was shock. I mean, shocking might not be the right word, but certainly surprising in just how fast they moved to increase defense spending. Um, what kind of pressure within NATO does that put on Canada to follow suit? It puts a, a fair amount of pressure because Germany was always the attention getter for being the laggard on the whole. We got to spend something like two percent of our gross domestic product on our own defenses. Uh, you know expectation. And so with Germany now jumping ahead of us, it leaves us as a very notable laggard. The other countries that are near us are not ones that there are many expectations about. On the other hand, what NATO really cares about is is folks showing up. And and so I always have to push back and say, you know, Greece really performs well on this whole 2% metric, but nobody counts on Greece as being a good ally. They spend a lot of their money on personnel and they spend a lot of their money on their army being pointed at another NATO ally, which would be Turkey. Whereas we showed up in Afghanistan, we are the framework nation in Latvia, which means we're the ones who are herding all the cats for this battle group to serve as a deterrent against the Russians in Latvia and to reassure the Latvians that NATO's got their back. So there will be a lot of pressure, and I think you will see more defense spending in the future. I guess the the question then becomes, if Europe is rethinking its strategic balance to some extent or, or rethinking its security, how does Canada help that? Um, and, and what can we do best 
given that we probably won't or don't need to spend 2% of GDP, especially not quickly, I don't think we could find a way to spend it all. But to target, spend it in a targeted way might be really helpful in the short term. Well, I think what you'll see is uh, at NATO is decisions about the presence in Eastern Europe. It took a long time for us to get to where we're at now because the Germans, for instance, were reluctant to have a permanent uh, mission, permanent bases in the Baltics. NATO was sort of bound by an agreement they had signed with the Russians in 1997 uh, that said there wouldn't be any real NATO presence in the East. But Russia's violated every bit of that agreement. And so I think we're finally at a point where the Germans are going to say that agreement is dead. And that's going to mean probably uh, larger uh, deployments in Eastern Europe. There's certainly be more deployments in more countries in Eastern Europe. And the Canadians are going to be asked to send more troops to be there for a longer period of time. So instead of you know our troops rotating every six months, you might actually see longer deployments and it being kind of like the old Cold War where we would send troops over for three years, their families would join them. And it'd be a longer lasting effort. I'm not saying we're going to go that far, but I am saying that this idea of us just being there for a little while is, 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 is you know, that's been overcome by events. Yeah, you'd certainly meet, when I was growing up, you'd often meet kids who'd grown up in, you know, military kids who'd grown up in Germany and other parts of Europe uh, based on those deployments. Um, in, in terms of our own security, and this has been talked about quite a bit in the last few months, um, you know, that we are, we do have a border with Russia, so to speak, uh-huh. and the kind of wake-up call this would be for for Canadian security in general. What do you make of that? Well, I'm of mixed opinions on this. I think that the government has been for the past couple years trying to talk up NORAD or Northern Warning System modernization. That is that the systems we have in the North to warn North America, not just us, but the Americans about missile, you know, cruise missiles, hypersonic missiles, the old-fashioned ICBM missiles, they're all getting old that we don't really have good monitoring for ships that will eventually be using the Northwest Passage. And so there's been a big pressure to spend more money on that. And that's going to be incredibly expensive, but it makes a great deal of sense. On the other hand, I think there's a bit of of what we would call threat inflation about, oh, the Russians, if they're going to attack Ukraine, well, they could attack us easily too. And it's like, well, A, it's really hard to operate in the Arctic. And B, it's a long way to go from the Russian side to our side. So I don't expect to see little green men or Russian troops parachuting onto Canadian territory anytime soon. If they can't feed and fuel their soldiers that are in a country that's immediately next door to them, there's no way they can sustain operations on the other side of the Arctic. Yeah, you pointed that out in a tweet today that uh, if they're having trouble with supply chains in Kharkiv on their border, they might have uh, considerable more difficulty in the high Arctic. Um One of the things that always comes up in these situations is that there's always then a push for more defense spending when when these sorts of international events happen. How do we watch out for the threat inflation or the threatflation, as you mentioned? Well, I think the key is that we need to figure out what investments make sense and what is our role in the world. We can't have a military that completely replicates the American military on a smaller scale. We can't afford to have aircraft carriers you know, if we ended up having attack helicopters, then we'd have to have all kinds of equipment and personnel dedicated to that. So we can't choose to have everything. And every time we go anywhere, we're going to be alongside allies. So we have to figure out what are our allies going to bring to the potential fight and what can we bring to the potential fight and invest in those things. Obviously, we're going to have to restock our shelves from all the anti-tank weapons and anti-aircraft weapons and all the other things that we've given to Ukrainians. Um, I think that this war is teaching us 
that any future conflict we're involved in, that's not a, an Afghanistan kind of thing, is going to use up our equipment pretty quickly. So it might make sense for us to spend a lot of money actually just on the small stuff, hand grenades, ammunition, anti-tank weapons, anti-aircraft weapons, you know, the, the, the uh, Ottawa media focused mostly on the big things, the ships and the planes, the fire replacement program. Um, and that's important stuff, but it turns out this war is really turning on smaller stuff. And that stuff is actually good news is easier to buy. You just have to buy in bulk. Uh, it doesn't require a 30 year long procurement process to get these things. So I think we focus more on what capabilities we really need uh and how do we get them in the most effective way possible which might mean not always buying things in, in canada but buying the best things that are being produced by some of the country yeah we've certainly seen that when it comes to uh shipbuilding for instance uh you know a lot of programs that i think we were looking at i think david Pugliese wrote an article today about this uh, a lot of programs that we we're looking at the prices have become uh, become inflated. So you, you wonder what you don't want to throw good money after bad, right? You do want to target it. So is, is this something of a paradigm shift now for, for how we spend, you know, some, a time to rethink how Canada's military is going to operate in the 21st century and what we're going to spend on since you're right. Well, obviously we can't spend on everything. Well, I think that we're going to continue with the two of the major projects that I've talked about, because we do need to have new ships. Our ships are really old. And we need to need to have new planes because our fighter planes are really old. So those two stories are still going to dominate the news. They're still going to be incredibly expensive. But you're also not going to see the, the any government, whether it's liberal, conservative, NDP, saying we're not going to build the ships in Halifax and Vancouver because that's a major vote getter and it's a major jobs program. So you're going to still see those things go forward. I have no doubt that those, you know, we'll be getting those ships eventually, but it's going to take a long time. I'm speaking with Steve Sademan, the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs and the Director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network. We're talking about the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the security establishment in this country and certainly our assessment of our military needs and how best to meet them, as well as pressure within NATO uh, to increase military spending in this country. After this, we'll talk a bit more about what this deal between the NDP and the Liberals, could, how it could impact promises the Liberals have made to increase defence spending. That's after this. I'm back with Steve Sabin, the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs and the Director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network. Uh, I know there's been a lot of talk uh, over the past few days about this deal, this uh, supply and confidence arrangement between the NDP and the Liberals. Certainly, defence spending promised by the, uh, or at least hinted at by the Liberals for this upcoming budget and budget's future. Uh, do you think this deal puts any of that into jeopardy? I'm not so sure. You know, the proof will be in the pudding what they actually end up doing. But we've already seen science and NDP that said that they were not going to get in the way of defense spending as long as they get their, their spending on the social programs that they like. Um, I think one of the positive sides of the pandemic, if one can say that, is that we've got such huge deficits now from that, that once we ramp down that spending, the deficits caused by the, these defense programs and, with, and this, these new social programs, whether pharmacare or dental, will look quite small. I mean, the, the irony is that the greatest threat to the Canadian military is the conservative government. Because if you put conservatives in power, they'd be really focused on deficit cutting. And where is the money in the, in, in the, in the budget? And that is with defense. So I, at this point, I just don't see it. And I, certainly the NDP is not going to support cutting the ships because they too are competing for votes. 
in Halifax and Vancouver. So I, I think what the pandemic might have done, which has caused people to think about cutting the military, Ukraine is undone. And that it's going to be very hard for people to push for budget cuts on in defense at this moment in time, even with this agreement, because the world is now more threatening than it was a month ago, or at least it, it's more obviously more threatening than it was a month ago. And this is one of those political this it's often I, I think a political misconception defense spending in this country has been about the same more or less under every government in the last decades i was looking through it earlier it really hasn't shifted much in this century for instance well yes and no and that that uh, harper reduced the budget by quite a bit uh, as he had promised to have zero deficits when he was running for office in 2015 and the liberals have been increasing defense spending but generally Neither party has gotten anywhere close to 2%. Um, and some of the big challenges you hinted at at the start, which is even if we wanted to spend more money, we could allocate it, but we might be able to spend it, which we might not be able to get the contracting done to actually buy the things we want to buy, that these things take time. So the liberals have a plan for buying planes they haven't chosen yet. They have a plan for ships that are you know, still in the process of, of being contracted out. And so those things will cause us to spend more money, even if there was not uh, a Ukraine uh, being invaded by Russia, that the effort to build a northern, you know, redo the northern warning system. Uh, uh, Minister Anand announced at a meeting two weeks ago that they've already allocated $250 million, so a quarter of a billion dollars, just on studying that. And everything that we do in the Arctic costs an incredible amount of money. And so the question will be, what do we need to do for that? And that's going to require a lot of negotiations with the people who live in the North because we're going to be, able to be building a lot of infrastructure. And so we need to consult with Inuit about that since it's, it's their land. And uh, the best way to guarantee our sovereignty in the North is to have the peoples in the North, uh, you know, be involved in those processes. So that's yeah. going to take time. Yeah. An excellent point. Um, in an ideal world, I mean, if we start to, we, we fast forward a, a few years where are we at with, I mean, it feels like things have been, you know, certainly Afghanistan was a real, a real shift for Canada following the, all those years of peacekeeping. And then all of a sudden it was peace enforcing. We had, we'd shifted to a kind of a new, uh, a new world of, of different threats, terrorism, for instance. Um, and now we have this, again, kind of a more conventional war happening on the ground in Ukraine. So when you look forward, what does Canada's military need to try to figure out? Or what do we need to figure out about what an effective Canadian military looks like in 10 years? Uh, I think that the key is just trying to figure out what we do well, what we do poorly, and invest more in what we do well. And we've learned from our allies what they do really well in Latvia. And so we have a better idea. Uh, but it, it's hard because you're going to ask certain segments of the military to get less and other segments to get more. And, and nobody wants to have their own budget cut. But the basic reality remains, we're going to need new ships and we're going to need new planes. And both of those are going to suck all the oxygen out of the room and get all the attention and a lot of the money because they're expensive systems, but they're they're basic. We need to have fighter aircraft and we need to have ships. The reemergence of NATO, at least for now, as, as what seems to be a united and relatively strong alliance, how much does that benefit Canada in the long run then? A strong NATO? A strong NATO. It benefits Canada quite a bit because Canada, again, never operates by itself. It doesn't have a military big enough to operate by itself. And to be fair, most countries can't operate on their own. These days, not even the French and the British can really operate on their own in any big kind of way. 
And so the NATO is rediscovering this sense of purpose that there's more consensus now about the threats to the East. Uh, it's important. We had a big debate in NATO for the past 10 years about whether to focus more on the East or more on essentially preventing refugees from the Middle East or from, from Africa. And now, thanks to Russia, we're reminded that the, the primary and classic mission of NATO is still a very important one. And it's going to make it a little bit easier, I think, to have these future plans developed as we have a clear consensus right now that, you know, everybody uh, in NATO is seized with this moment. And even though we may fade a little bit as time goes on, I think this is going to be an important energizer for NATO meetings. Uh, what people aren't talking about is 2024, because this could all change if, if Donald Trump gets reelected again. Steve Sabin, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure.